Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Svarim Chatter podcast. On this episode, I'm going to be joined by Professor Clemence Bouluk. Hopefully, I got that kind of okay. Um, who is a professor at um, Columbia University, and we're going to be discussing her book, which I believe was her dissertation, which is called Another Modernity, Ilya Benamozik's Jewish Universalism. So first of all, uh, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Start off with uh, telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and about your background. Right. So uh, my name is Clemence Boulouk. You absolutely nailed it. Um, I um, came to um, the U.S. 12 years ago uh, to do my Ph.D. at NYU. I worked under um, Elliot Wolfson and um, and the history department as well. So it's a dual. It was a dual Ph.D. in Jewish studies and history. Prior to that, I was a uh, book critic and a journalist uh, in France for um, six, seven years. And uh, this is what inspired me to uh, become an academic. I really um, enjoyed and I was in awe of, um, I got to meet Moshe Idel uh, and people who really you know, gave me uh, that, uh, the bug. Um, and so, yeah, I, I uh, it was a career shift. I came to NYU and did my postdoc at um, at the Cat Center at, at Penn, and um, and I started as an assistant professor uh, in Israel and Jewish studies at Columbia in the department in the religion department um, in 2015. And so, as you mentioned, the the book is um, you know a heavily revised version of my dissertation. So. Well, we'll get in a minute, I guess, who he was, but how, what, uh, what, what, what attracted you? How did you get into this interesting figure of Leo Benamozeg? Right. So that uh, connects me um, back to that, that, you know, the, the background uh, where I come from. So I worked as a journalist in France, so in a very, very secular country. And um, in the newsroom, I heard so many things said about, you know, religion and, you know, uh, how uh, religion breeds uh, intolerance, and um, and that's something that I always found uh, intellectually uh, weak and also inaccurate. Uh, I mean, the worst two, um, you know, the, the worst two ideologies of the 20th century and the murderous ideologies, Stalinism and Nazism, really didn't need, not to mention the, you know, Red Murs, but didn't need religion to, uh, you know, as an excuse for their uh, for the crimes that they uh, committed. So um, I, I was always interested in people uh, building bridges and how you can actually look at traditions and elicit places uh, where a dialogue can be, can be had. So there's also this idea of coexistence that I find extremely interesting and that um, also is a link with Ben Mosaic, my family, uh, is from uh, Morocco, Algeria, and, and Turkey, um, you know, way back. Um, and so th- there, was, there was a time, even though you can say that there is this kind of mythology or romanticism about religious coexistence, but there is something there that I actually, uh, I experienced when I was, uh, you know, when I would visit my family in Morocco, and something that I'm probably also ha- uh, nostalgic of. And, and so those figures were able, you know, in, in time of divisiveness, um, it, you know, between religions, but also within religions, it's something that Ben Amozeg really um, laments and that uh, he tried to, I mean, that, that's what inspired him to actually look at the scriptures, the text, the tradition, and try to find this kind of, this nucleus where a, a new narrative uh, can be written. Uh, and so that's why the, 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 the book's title is Another Modernity. Uh, we're not condemned to that kind of, um, uh, the, those conflictual, uh, relations, or at least there can be uh, something else, like another narrative, than that that can be pursued. So, who, I guess we should also start off with who was he? Who was this uh, Revelio Benamozeg? Ilya, Elijah is referred to different ways. Who who was he? What is his life story? 
So Ilya Benamozeg, uh, I'll, I'll go with the Italian uh, name, which is, you know, it's Ilya who Elijah in English, but when you look at the archives and, and the birth certificates um, in Livorno, his name is Ilya, uh, which is also significant because that means that the, uh, the, the Jewish community in Livorno and, and people were actually willing to give their um, children um, Italianized names. Um, so I, you know, I started answering your question. He was born in 1823 in the uh, Nivono, which is a port city in Tuscany. Um, and he was actually of Moroccan descent. Both his parents were, um, you know, uh, children of, of quite prestigious um, families where you had Dayanim, you know, rabbis, um, and his, his grandfather, especially um, in Morocco, was a very respected figure. Um, and, um, and so that also, the fact that, um, that Benamozeg was a, um, an Italian um, uh, rabbi of Moroccan descent, uh, thriving in, the, in, in Livorno also gives you a glimpse into this kind of uh, exchanges, intellectual, commercial, and, and rabbinical exchanges that were taking place um, uh, in the Mediterranean in the, I mean, from the 17th century, 16th, 17th century onwards. Uh, Livorno is an interesting case study because it is a place, uh, there was never a ghetto in Livorno. So that, that's a place that was always, um, ever since the Medici gave those edicts, that uh, gave uh, you know freedom of religion. Um, it became a hub for printing. It became a place in which uh, you know merchants would do business, and then that was accompanied by uh, rabbinical uh, networks. And and uh, and Benamozeg really stands for that kind of openness of of um, certain kind of what David Sorkin called port Jews. Um, so this is again like very. A few miles away from Livorno, uh, the Inquisition was, you know, absolutely active. Uh, there were there were ghettos, but that, that's something that Benamozeg never experienced. So the question is whether his upbringing and his background in a place of, you know, relative tolerance. I mean, it's not this kind of metropolitan cities that we know, and uh, it, it was still, you know, more segregated. But whether that actually, inst I mean. Um, uh, influence his understanding of what, how uh, dialogues can be had. Right. I wish you kind of touched on, I just want to mention something about Livorno, which is right, the Duke of Tuscany, right, they, when they started, they said that the Medici, they said you can, uh, religion was freedom of religion, essentially, and they were, there was no, no issues, and and so it, it became a Sephardi city, even though it was in Italy, but it was all Sephardim, really, mm -hmm. which is interesting about it, and it came from a Sephardi family. So, what did he do, Benamozik? Was he was he a rabbi? Was he a rav? Was he did he have a job? What was he? What did he do his whole life? So initially, it was it was destined to be a merchant. He lost his father at a very young age. He had to support the family, his mother, and then you know his wife. Um, but it was uh, it was also he went to the um, seminary and he was a he um, was a rabbi. He was also a teacher. Um, and so his students really remembered I mean, and wrote, he had a generation of, of uh, students. Interestingly, some of them, uh, some of them became pretty uh, active, like left wing in the left wing party. Um, Livorno is also the birthplace of the Socialist Party um, in Italy, which is interesting. Um, but he, um, so he had this teaching activities. He was also a uh, printer. A publisher and so that is an important part of his work that even for people who know Benamozeg and um, you and there there's an, a number of people who actually know of his work especially for the Noahide laws and how he was uh, he promoted this kind of interfaith uh, dialogue with Christians but that that part of his activity which was actually a significant um, you know um, source of income for him uh, is not so well known, but I think it's also interesting because that was another of his interventions. You know, printing and publishing is actually, um, you know, uh, yeah, it, it's making a statement. He wanted to be part of that conversation, especially um, in the Maghreb and in the, in the Middle East. Um, so that idea, you mentioned his um, Sephardi identity. He talks about being a, um, 
a uh, uh, an Oriental, you know, at a time where Orientalism, you know, is taking is is, is be, or Orientals are described as backwards. He actually used it as a badge of honor and wanted to promote a certain understanding of what the Orient had to offer. Uh, again, like it's in the kind of openness of religion. Right, and like even though he was in Livorno, which is in Italy, he was uh, his printing press. He published a lot of things early on, right, for the Syrian Jews and for the for the real Sephardim. He was one of their big publishing houses, and that came to an end eventually. Um, you want to tell over the story about what happened there? Right, so that came to a very abrupt end. Um, so Ben Amozeg was, um, you know, he was a champion of Jewish orthodoxy. Uh, there is no question about it. He had very little respect for uh, the reform movement, or at least uh, he just thought that uh, it was almost a kind of Protestant version of, of, Christi of Judaism, which was not a compliment in his, in his mind. Thought that, uh, that the reform movement was actually um, uh, censoring um, the, the multiplicity of voices that you can find in the, in the tradition, in the Talmud, and that as a result, it was a very impoverished version of what Judaism had to offer um, and, and of its worth in the modern uh, world. Uh, basically, there is a strobe that it's like charism, right? They're, it's, they're basically using just the, the, the Bible and, and again, an impoverished version of it. And so uh, he was, yes, indeed the printer of, uh, the publisher of a number of uh, religious figures in Aleppo. But he also published what was going to be one of his last books, which is um, a, a, a commentary of, of the Chumash. So it's called Emla Mikra. And so, um, he, so which he published between 1862 and 1865. Um, and in a very typical Benamozeg uh, way, uh, he felt that nothing was uh, outside of the realm of Judaism, right? That, that's what he called Hebraism. Uh, that Judaism is a place in which you can um, synthesize or at least use foreign accretions and elevate it. Um, and so as a result, uh, he, shy, he never shied away from uh, using uh, non-Jewish sources in order to illuminate uh, Jewish texts. Uh, he was, he, he felt that heresy uh, was not even an appropriate concept to describe, uh, you know, what is what seems to be again outside of Judaism because nothing is really outside of Judaism, and so that's why polytheism, in his understanding, even serves a purpose uh, because it is uh, in this very Kabbalistic understanding that there is a, there is a spark um, of truth, there is a part of truth uh, that is contained. Uh, everywhere, and that you just have to, um, you know, um, decipher, detect, and then and then elevate to a new level of of um, of holiness. Um, but that was not necessarily the case. Uh, I mean, the, the the opinion of the Aleppo rabbinate uh, that was actually fighting against uh, an attempt to set up a reform community <laughs> in. Uh, in Aleppo at that time. And so even though they knew that Ben Amozeg was this orthodox figure, they uh, put his ban, I mean, they put a ban on uh, his books, Cherem, which is really uh, a, a very um, harsh measure, um, and they, they banned and burned it. So the, the, the commentary basically uh, is, is done and burned. And this is really, I mean, this is what Maimonides described, that the person really has to be a heretic because what it means when you're burning the, the, those texts means that you're burning the, the, the words of God and, and, and God itself. So this is the harshest measure there is. I mean, like, pick your heretic, but this is a kind of Spinoza-grade treatment. And, um, and so Ben Amozeg was extremely shocked. Uh, obviously, not a single one of his uh, books was ever sold again in Aleppo. And Ben Amozeg was extremely shocked because it fe he felt that that was um, very unlike anything that Judaism had to offer, and especially in the modern world, um, because what he saw from his point of view in Italy at that time was the way in which the papacy, the Pope, was actually becoming this kind of very 
conservative or um, uh, uh, you know backward figure actually like not offering he's the, the pope in 1864 you know uh, prom promulgates a syllabus of errors that really condemns modernity in no uncertain terms so he felt that this was that was sort of mimicking um this um this take on modernity that religion had and that uh, that all, all of a sudden like what he felt was the core of judaism which is really this place in which um, multiple aspects of truth can come together and be elevated uh, th that was sort of um, um, taken away from him basically and and again was this humiliation and uh, and the indignation of, of someone who considered himself and rightly so as someone who was uh, you know a champion of, Jew of of orthodoxy and what's so interesting is, like you said, they, they burnt them that had the Chumash in there. So they were burning the Chumash, not only his words. Now, now this was in Aleppo because did he have, I think right in the book, he did have, uh, obviously, defenders on, uh, on his side, right? And as well as it wasn't banned elsewhere. Like, I don't know if anyone else read it even, but it, otherwise there was nothing. I mean, right? It was just. Yeah, I mean, he actually enlisted a number. So he never, you wrote a commentary on, um, on the question of cremation, which was a really uh, important question that you find across Europe. A number of rabbis addressed this question of cremation at the end of the 19th century, uh, reform rabbis and others. Um, but so basically he uh, never wrote in Hebrew again, uh, and he enlisted people to actually defend him and, and say that their, his conception of Judaism was not any kind of heresy, uh, but that was something that was uh, misunderstood by the people he called the overzealous uh, uh, rabbis of Aleppo, and uh, yeah, and so um, and 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 he defended himself again in an orthodox um, uh, uh, new, uh, newspaper. Um, so and the, and the people that he that he that he published and who actually you know came to his defense were also significant figures um, across, uh, across the Middle East. So, um, but that, that was that certainly a turning point because from that moment on, uh, he sort of redirected his efforts uh, towards a, uh, an Italian speaking and French audience uh, and tried to make a case uh, for the universalism of, of Judaism and for the way in which um, Judaism was actually the answer to the religious crisis of his time. Uh, again, was by showing that uh, this opposition, those dichotomies between, uh, between science and faith, uh, between religion and reason, were actually a kind of um, a legacy, a, a faulty legacy and, and flawed legacy of, uh, of the Enlightenment, of a certain Escala, uh, the overrated Mendelssohn, as he calls him, uh, which is an interesting uh, uh, way to describe him, and that uh, by revisiting those dichotomies and those binaries, he'd be able to um, come up with a robust defense of, of Judaism and thus reestablished Judaism's um, place. And, you know, it's, it's a sort of reformulation. He, he revisits the, the idea of, the, of the, the mission toward, I mean, to the nations, right? So, and, and again, from a completely orthodox perspective. Right. So before we get on to the, the main focus of your book and, and, and his famous, most famous work, I want to just finish up a few things on him. So first of all, I'm curious, um, First of all, do you have any particular? You said he enlisted defenders. You have you know have anybody who specifically ended up defending him in this regard? Yeah, uh, Hazan was a, an interesting figure, um, and and so he's he's the one who was um, again like uh, one of, a figure of orthodoxy, um, Turkey, uh, and and also um, uh, spanning the Mediterranean uh, because those people traveled a lot. And, and espousing this view of, um, of uh, the, the necessity, actually, it's almost like a moral duty of Judaism to, um, to address and confront the, the questions of the time. And so that, that's something that, uh, that, it, that it was really adamant about. Uh, so you said, Hazan, yeah. I'm also curious, like, do you, I don't know if you, I don't 
I don't remember if you touched on this how much in the book, but like you, did you feel that some of this had to do with his, obviously he was Moroccan, and Lavarno, the Sephardi, but how much had to do with Italian Jewry was always different. They were always more open-minded and there was a very, very different culture there. How much of that had to do with, with his thought and writing, really? So his, his Italian Judaism is extremely important um, in the sense that it uh, sort of leads him to come up with this art, this connection between uh, universalism and and particularism so basically uh and, and that is something that well that is another thread but he articulated it for the first time around the time of italian the risorgimento really this kind of italian independence from uh the yoke of the austrian empire and so basically what he said is that uh, you you had to be like there's this kind of double pride of being Italian and being Jewish. And so there is this kind of combination of, uh, of, of two universalisms, basically, and that the more, Itali the more Jewish, the more Italian. So it's not a sort of mutually exclusive uh, identity. Uh, it is something that actually enables you to examine further the ethical uh, foundation of, uh, of your citizenship. And that will and you'll ultimately um, uh, enrich and deepen both your uh, Italian identity, but also your Jewish identity. And he has moments which are absolutely, uh, you know, he, he gave speeches uh, around the time of the Risorgimento in 1848, when the, the people tried to uh, actually, you know, oust the Austrians, and then they came back. So came back with a vengeance, and he was suspended from his teaching duties. But he said that basically, uh, Moses was a kind of, uh, was almost like a figure of, of Italian Judaism. And, and he said, well, you know, Italian Jews, you have Dante, you have Moses, you have this double glory, so you should rejoice. And, uh, and sometimes, I mean, I, I, for all the, uh, the admiration and the, the interest that I have for, but I was like, there's moments where things are a little over the top. And this double glory of being, you know, heirs to Dante and to Moses is, is one of those moments. But, he, you know, that's one of the speeches he gave. He was young and people believed in the future and, and, and freedom, the, the country. So. Yeah, I wonder how much they were swept up in nationalism. Like, I don't believe he really, I can't imagine he really believed that. It probably was some sort of rhetoric that he was throwing out there at right. the time. It didn't, yeah. I so, mean, it is, I mean, some of the writings are, are dated, like you really hear the tropes that he was also borrowing, interestingly, from some uh, uh, Catholic thinkers. And so the idea that he was, he was always trying to reclaim for Judaism what he felt that Catholicism had sort of hijacked. And so sometimes that extended to some, some of those tropes and bombastic, uh, you know, claims that, uh, that actually uh, Dante Moses and, you know, and the rest were uh, the way to go for Italian Judaism. Yeah. Right. So I just want to mention, right. So two more things about Amy Limerick. I want to mention that Amy Limerick, like you said, it was burnt. Um, I've looked for it a number. It, it seems like it's hard to come by. It's not exactly, uh, I don't know if that's because of it banning and burnt and et cetera. It's not easy to come by. I know Hebrewbooks.org has Boratius and Vayikra on there. So we can print it. They don't have the rest, though. They only have two. Yeah. It's yeah. funny. But I mean, it's in libraries, but it's not exactly the easiest thing. Yeah, like you said, it's definitely a very interesting mix. So the other thing I wanted to mention his other writings was in Hebrew. Um, I don't think we touched on exactly on this, which is that he was very much a, a Kabbalist, so to speak. He was very into Kabbalah. And two mm -hmm. of his famous writings, which are on Hebrew books, and I know people have read them, are um, Emat Mafkia, against, written against Ari Noem, of, of which was the against Kabbalah by Yehuda Ari of Madana, and he also, Yehuda Ari of he also, Tam Lashad, which is a refutation on Shadal's Bikuach on Kabbalah. So he really went to defend Kabbalah. So maybe speak a little bit about his affinity for Kabbalah and also about his, you know, these, these, these works that he wrote defending it. Right. So uh, those are really. Uh, uh, works that he wrote um, in his youth. I mean, like, not that he ever you know, walked away from defending Kabbalah. I mean, he really had, that was another um, uh, source of pride for him, like to be able to uh, be the champion of what he called the most despised science. And he called Kabbalah science as opposed to, to make, you know, he called it theosophy also, but that was also to make a sort of statement against the notion that Kabbalah would only be like this kind of mysticism and uh, a way to sort of remove oneself from, uh, from the conversation and from the time. He was someone who really thought that religion had a, t had a role to play in the city. 
as 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 a force for and and force for change and that actually misses i mean kabbalah had uh, was um a device that i mean or a tool that could be uh used um uh, uh with great profit and so yeah these defenses basically were uh, meant to uh you know push against the accusation of uh the the not the almost the non-authenticity of kabbalah and so the antiquity of kabbalah which you know he, he was one of those uh, thinkers who thought that it, it was actually not a creation of you know uh, medieval spain but he also sort of fent off that fend off uh by saying that even if that were the case it doesn't matter um because what kabbalah has to offer uh is a, a system a worldview uh, that you know makes for uh, coexistence that also is a blueprint for both political um you know worldviews but also for uh, progressive revelation so that's something that is extremely important to him um and so the, his defense of kabbalah was predicated on this as well uh, and he actually yeah he didn't make uh, friends with um was Luzzatto, who's the other towering figure of Italian Judaism in the 19th century, uh, rather the opposite. You know, Luzzatto looked at him uh, from Padua, so from the north, uh, and, and the, he looked at this uh, Livornese uh, milieu, uh, really wishing that they were not, they, they weren't, they wouldn't be so uh, enamored with Kabbalah. And so there is, I mean, interesting a sort of back and forth between them was Ben Amozek being the younger uh, student, I mean, almost a student, you know, claiming to be the student of Luzzatto and, and Luzzatto showing some sort of um, contempt uh, that Ben Amozek then, you know, sort of pushed against and, and wrote this book, uh, although claiming that he that he respected Luzzatto, but, but really showing that this uh, contempt for uh, Kabbalah was actually, um, uh, almost ill-placed right so so like you said so those main two forum that he wrote against was claiming desire wasn't uh, written by Bishim Ben Yichai it was it was mm -hmm. later on and he went to refute that and so people interested in his farm are uh, very nice defenses there are other there've been other farm written in defense but that those were some yeah. that he definitely wrote in defense so interestingly you mentioned um um with Shadal Shmuel Lutsato, his relationship so what other did he obviously was in Levarno's whole life what was his relationship um, with any other uh, throughout, not not in, in in the Middle East, but what about in Europe? Did he have a relationship with other rabbis or with 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 Maskele? What was his relationship? Did he? So basically, Ben Amazek tried to establish, I mean, some sort of relations uh, with uh, Wissenschaftler, the Wissenschaftler students. He didn't have German, like he, his French was excellent uh, or like good enough to have, a, a, you know, conversations and, and in, um, letter exchange. Um, his German was probably not, a, not on par. And he actually uh, asked Luzzato for an introduction to a few people that Luzzato never really seemed to have given to him. Uh, he was in conversation with Schneinsteiger um but but that that's pretty much the amount of his interactions he was adamant though that he wanted to uh for italian judaism to create a wissenschaft that that would be a demonstration going back to his, you know uh patriotic discourses that that would be both uh, a demonstration of the worth of italian and the dynamism of italian judaism and that would be a contribution to uh, Italian letters and Italian history, um, uh, you know, as a science. So there is there is this effort. So and he also so that was a kind of competition that he was in um, uh, with with the Wissenschaft uh, in Germany. He was um, he was in conversation more extensively uh, with uh, people in France. Um, you know, he again he uh, spoke. Uh, French, wrote in French, you know, switched to French, um, and he was uh, also a member of the Alliance Israelite Universelle, so the, um, um, the, the this, this institution uh, that tried to promote a certain, uh, a certain version of Judaism, which is interesting because like, it almost conflicts with his uh, orthodoxy, 
but a certain vision of 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 a, of a French universalism applied to uh, to uh, Jewish institutions, and really a way in which um, uh, Jew, Jewish communities across uh, the Middle East and in uh, in the Maghreb would be um, you know civilized basically uh, with this kind of very Orientalist uh, sort of tropes. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was, um, he submitted um, an entry to a contest that was about, you know, uh, reassessing the role of Judaism in Christianity. And he was extremely upset. And this is also very bit of mosaic. Like he was upset because he was a, um, so he, he got the prize. Uh, this is uh, uh, Jewish and Christian ethics. Um, but uh, the rabbis were reluctant to publish the book as, you know, as it stood uh, because, you know, Ben Amazek could be a little scathing towards Christianity and basically claim that um, Christianity had um, hijacked or borrowed and, 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 uh, and made its uh, uh, legacy or its, its uh, ethical um, world um a what was actually uh, uh you know the, the 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 property of judaism so that's something that he was extremely uh, adamant about and that didn't go so well because the rabbis felt that that could be that uh, you know um christians could i mean catholics in france could take um uh umbrage like that, that they could that wouldn't go well necessarily Yes, I just want to point out that um, the Christian ethics has been actually been published by Mossad of Cook many years ago. It's not in print, but uh, called Bishvile Musser, and as well as um, uh, Rabbi Leo Rachem Mzaini from Haifa published it also as Musa Yehudi Leumas Musser Nitsri. So different name, but they've both been published and they are uh, available, uh, well, kind of, somewhat. Um, so let's uh, get back to, I think, we mentioned, alluded to earlier, after the whole Emil Mikra fiasco, he kind of turned to French, and he just ended up writing in French. So he's, he's most famous, I guess, we should, you know, having got to this part, for his famous um, magnum opus, so to speak, um, which would be um, Israel and Humanities, or Yisrael Vanushi, I don't know how to pronounce it, not pronounce it properly, in, in Hebrew, um, which was published by Mozart of Cook. It's published as well in an um, in, in, in English edition um, as well. So this was not published by him, right? It was published posthumously by his students. I think we should talk about, the, I guess, the student first. His student, I'm going to butcher his name, was Amy Pellier, I think. I'll let you do it in the proper French. Uh, of French. So w w what was the student's name and how did he become his student? What was his background? Right, so this is really where uh, Benamazek's legacy is, is, becomes part of the story, right? So uh, Benamazek died in 1900 and, and Israel and Humanity was published in eight, eight, uh, 1914. Uh, and his student, Aimé Pallier, was actually recruited to work on the unfinished manuscript by uh, Benamazek's son, uh, Emmanuel and by one of the rabbis of the Livorno community. So how did, they, how did those two meet? Emi Pallier was a student, uh, um, in, a seminary student, who felt that, you know, went through a, a crisis and felt that Christianity and Catholicism especially had lost their moral compass. And that they, and that he actually should return to, I mean, the, the, the the, the logical way was to uh, was to uh, return to Judaism, and he was really close to uh, converting. Around that time, he was put in touch with um, Ben Amose by uh, the, the rabbi from Nice uh, in the south of France. So that shows that Ben Amose really was had a presence in France and in French-speaking uh, circles, and so. A correspondence between Benamozek and Amy Pallier ensued, in which Benamozek discouraged Pallier from converting and said, "Well, what you should be doing actually is to promote the uh, the Noahide message." So those, you know, seven uh, laws of, Mo of, of Noah, um, and that uh, first of all, there is this kind of touching, you know, story about you know Amy Pallier not wanting to hurt his mother's feelings that he felt that he become. He would, it's almost like a, like a Jewish mom story, 
uh, that he didn't want to make his mother sad by converting. But most, more importantly, uh, what uh, uh, Benamuzek said is that one of the reasons why Christianity had lost its, its moral compass and its, you know, religious uh, relevance is that it didn't probably acknowledge a this ethical uh, legacy of Judaism or the ethical core of Judaism that is at the center of Christianity, uh, which is basically so the gist of um, of Jewish and Christian ethics, uh, but also because it had to acknowledge the fact that it was uh, a sort of um, version of the Noahide laws and that Catholicism and Christianity were not, you know, had, had not come to terms with the fact that they were actually a declension or a, a version of that uh, revelation. Uh, and that sort of meant that the real universalism, which, you know, Christianity has claimed to be promoting, actually came from Judaism. And so that, A, by doing this, Ben Amoseg sort of you know, uh, prove wrong uh, people who said that Judaism was just this kind of ethnocentric, um, you know, religion, which was also the basis for so much anti-Judaism and anti-Semitism, which was, you know, uh, uh, really fixture in his time. I mean, not that it has gone away, but that the that that you know he was active around the time of the Dreyfus affair. Um, and so that's something that he uh, sort of was aware of, even if he, he doesn't, you know, talk about it you know, directly. And so that would be a way to actually um, show that the two revelations, the Noahide revelation and the Mosaic revelation were part and parcel of this universal religion that he wanted to promote, like really pushing to uh, uh, create this message of religious unity that would be anchored in Judaism. And so that the, the reason why it's really important to push against this kind of uh, delusional message maybe or this uh, this lie or half truth of, of, of Christianity as being this universal religion which is basically what Catholicism means means universal uh, by showing that you know if the there's a path to uh, redemption for anybody who's willing to observe the Noahide laws. And that is actually more accessible than Christianity because salvation is mediated through Jesus. And if you don't believe in Jesus, basically there is no path uh, uh, for you. And so uh, Ben Amosek was really adamant that the Noahide message was extremely well suited for modernity as well because uh, modernity seemed to sort of be reluctant to acknowledge any kind of revelation, any kind of revealed uh, religion. But Nahism was actually a way to reconcile this sort of the primacy of reason and the, um, and there is, I don't know, like someone passing by, um, and, and that's certainly someone who doesn't believe in the primacy of anything but noise. Um, but anyway, so the, the primacy of, um, of reason and revelation, because, you know, it is a sort of, um, it's not natural law and it's not, it, it's, it's something that goes beyond uh, natural law and that is actually has a revealed source. And that modernity actually needed this kind of place in which reason and revelation can be combined uh, because that creates this kind of, that, that would quench the thirst for metaphysics that human beings have. And if they are deprived of it, then a religion, but also society is sort of deprived of, uh, you know, beauty, justice, and you name it. And this is the reason why he was so passionate about defending religion, because he says, basically, if religion disappears, there goes metaphysics, there goes justice, and there is no, um, there is no possibility for a good society. And, and so that's why Judaism, and especially Orthodox Judaism, was able to promote. And this is obviously a message that still uh, sometimes more than then resonates today in today's world and society. Is this something? So that is the focal point that was so of the book of, of Israel and humanity. So who who was he when he obviously didn't publish it? And we'll get to that in a minute. But who who is he aiming this book at? Who is his intended audience? What, what, what do we know? Yeah, I mean, this is fascinating because basically you, some people 
would be willing to call Benamozeg a, a novel, a, a case of novel failure. Who was he speaking to is also the key for the, the, the reason why he is not nearly as uh, remembered or as significant as he's, I think he should be because he has a robust understanding of what universalism in, is, uh, of what Kabbalah as politics can serve in our society as you know, he anticipates, he foreshadows um, uh, that idea of particularism and universalism in dialogue that, is, that has become uh, you know, so important in philosophy and that been, uh, Levinas, a thinker like Levinas come, has come to embody, uh, represent. And so that's something that Benamozeg was actually promoting and being acutely aware of um, and, and in pushing his, his uh, you know, message uh, for, um, a modern understanding of religion, especially Judaism. So um, this is probably, and, and going back to your question, who's, who was his intended audience? So obviously people who, would, you know, who spoke French, uh, that's why he turned to French because he wanted to expand his audience since he was no longer writing Hebrew and he felt that Italian was not necessarily the way to go. I mean, the, the Italian Jewish community was already shrinking and very uninterested in, in any kind of, you know, uh, reform movement or, I mean, um, counter reform movement or uh, trying to create this, um, uh, the, this, this new understanding of, of, of modernity in religion. And so I think that he also turned to French because there is this, this is the, this is the place of the Lumière, of the Enlightenment. And so he wanted to beat the French at their, in their own game, you know, somehow, uh, out, out enlightening the French, uh, or at least coming up with, a, with another version of their universalism. And so there is something which is almost uh, playful and, and, and uh, enter I mean, interesting to think of someone who was going to use the language of the nation that has this kind of universalistic ambition in order to promote the ambition, I mean, the universalistic message of Judaism. But do you think he was aiming this towards Jewish people or non-Jews? I think it was just, it was, it was actually both. And so that, that, that's a problem. I mean, he was addressing audiences. I mean, yeah, somehow things get lost in translation, I guess. Um, but the, he was trying to address um, both audiences on their own terms, and um, and sometimes really heavily working with uh, Christian concepts. I I haven't mentioned this uh, yet, but really working on Beda Mosaic means that you have to be uh, quite conversant in the Church Fathers, uh, in in the in the Gospels. Uh, he uses a lot of, of Christian references, if only to show that their uh, provenance uh, was was Jewish. And, and really trying to sort of retrace the steps of how Christianity had, had claimed uh, a patrimony and, uh, and a corpus that was Jewish. And so he was trying to address, um, you know, Jews who uh, could have sort of um, ventured away uh, or, you know, left Judaism, left the cradle or be tempted by a uh, more reform understanding and like really uh, letting go of this tradition of Talmud and Kabbalah. But, and, and so those people are addressed by saying, well, if you walk away from that uh, version of Judaism, you will not be able to come up with the pluralism that Judaism has to offer, which is a really interesting um, you know, and convincing argument. But he was also addressing non-Jews to, uh, to saying, well, this is where it came from, basically. You have to acknowledge this in order to be able to reform your own uh, tradition. And his readers were actually people, a number of his readers were church reformists. In the, as I mentioned, the Pope and the, and the Vatican were very much against any kind of uh, modernity. And so that created a crisis within the, with, within the church. Uh, people left actually, or were excommunicated. And so those people were, the, were avid readers of Ben Mosaic because they felt that by going back to the roots, uh, you know, around the time of the parting of the way between Judaism and Christianity, they would be able to reform uh, Christianity through Judaism. So sort of purify, cleanse, 
uh, Christianity from what had become dogmas and this kind of a more intolerant um, uh, under vision of, 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 Christ of Christianity and especially Catholicism, because we're not really talking, doesn't really address Prot the Protestant religion, or when he does, he's a kind of very dismissive way. He's very much a product of, you know, Italian Judaism. So the real Christianity for him is Catholicism. Right. I guess, like you said, I guess a lot of this is why maybe he wasn't uh, accepted. He didn't get it because he was, who was he writing to when he's very unique figure, what he's mixing was very interesting. So the book, your book obviously focuses on a lot of what we discussed. Also a lot more of the theology and the metaphysic, metaphysical discussion. So we'll, we don't want to, not bore people, but I want to get too deep into the show. But I do want to get to um, so people obviously should should buy the book and read there if they want to hear more about this. But the first, so the, the the actual first edition of Israel Humanity was published by his student now mm -hmm. who wasn't Jewish, and so there's been some sort of these accusations that he edited. So what what's the story there? How he published it, and and to the, and what are those accusations? So basically, the uh, the manuscript of Israel and Humanity was 1900 page long. Which is quite, and so the first version, the one that we have today in, in English is an abridged version of the edited version that Benamosek, that uh, Pallier, uh, you know, put together. Um, and so what people have accused Pallier of was to really promote this kind of universalism that would erase the, the Jewish difference. And that actually would make, that create this kind of universe in which, uh, uh, there is, yeah, such a thing as, as Jewish universalism, and that, um, and, and that just doesn't sit well with a certain understanding of, of, uh, of, of Jewish, uh, you know, exceptionalism or ethnocentrism. And so th that is, that is the, the, the gist of the argument against Pallier. Um, he took 14, 14 years uh, to, uh, you know, between 1900 about, or maybe 10, 10 full years editing the, the, the manuscript. And so basically people said that uh, they, they had the, the, the original manuscript and that the version that Pallier came up with was uh, very faulty and heavily edited. Uh, and especially around, you know, all that, you know, concerns uh, the, uh, I mean, Jewish exceptionalism and, and particularism. Um, well, it just so happens that I, the, the Livono archive do have the a three volume, it's an intermediary uh, stage. It's not, it's not Benamozeg's, you know, uh, uh, you know, handwriting, probably it's someone who sort of, or uh, re rewrote it. Uh, so it's an intermediary, it's, it's you know, um, but but it but it's it's pretty much the 1900 pages that were described when people talked about the manuscript. I guess that it's the son of Benamozek who sort of you know uh, copied down what his father had to uh, say about the the the, the whole uh, matter, and he really had a lot to say. But he also said it very much in um, in French that is that brim that's brimming with um, Italian phrases. And you'd better know Italian well in order to understand what he has to say in French. Um, and so, and that is also um, in, uh, that accords with a previous publication that Benamozeg uh, put out without an editor. Uh, and you, you see the same kind of syntactic problems, uh, the, the misspelling, uh, the, uh, you know, words in Italian and French sometimes are kind of, uh, close and so he'd go for the Italian spelling instead of the French spelling. So there are a number of patterns that I was able to identify and that really, you know, in order to ascertain that that was Benamozek's voice. And then I was able to compare it uh, to uh, uh, Pallier. So obviously he did it down from 1900 pages um, where Benamozek sometimes styled, you know, as I mentioned in Italian, like he was a little, you know, over the top. Uh, down to 730 pages, uh, and that was also green-lighted by the by the rabbi's son, so by Benamazek's son, and by the, one of the rabbis of Livorno. So if it if it had been completely unfaithful, and some as some people had said, uh, they would not have uh, you know uh, given him a, a go. Uh, but I must say that the, that the work that he did sometimes you know 
uh, I felt for Pallier because <laughs> that was a labor of love. He was obviously saw him as his disciple, but the the, the French sentences, you know, run-on sentences uh, was is, is pretty convoluted. But I, you know, some of the uh, editorial choices are also a reflection of the time. You know, there's uh, phrases that are very much, uh, you know, again like dated, and that's that's also what. Uh, Padilla went for again. His his agenda, Benamozeg's imperative was he, he expressed a few times when they corresponded and when they met the desire to be read, as you mentioned. By whom? That's a question. But he tried to sort of make sure that the the readership could be expanded as much as possible. So there are certain you know uh, concessions and compromises that you have to make. But you, we all know this. I mean, at a certain level, like what does it take in order to be understood? But the 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 um, my study of the, I mean, I really read every single of the of those nineteen hundred pages and compared, you know, word for word, um, word by word, the uh, those two versions and the discrepancies that I found are not substantial enough to to really uh, justify in order to you know agree to or uh, go with this idea that it, that it Christianized the text. Um, th that raises a question also of how much of a non-Jewish person uh, can, be, um, can be sort of steeped in Jewish text enough to uh, be able to sort of inhabit someone else's you know, uh, thoughts. Um, but but that, that's another question and, and, and um, that criticism that was leveled at Pallier, I think really speaks to this question of, you know, that tradition, how, how can an outsider, uh, someone who worked a lot, like studied a lot, uh, but was still, you know, like a seminary student who stumbled upon Judaism and, and felt that that was the right answer, uh, how much is that, you know, likely to actually get into the details and, and, and the complexity of Jewish mysticism and thought. Now, right. Now, so what has uh, Rabbi ben legacy been today? We're in 2020, he died 120 years ago. What is, his what is his legacy today? What has it been really over the years? So it is a very multifaceted um, legacy and also raises questions about, you know, that figure who really wanted to promote interreligious dialogue and that, you know, that it straddles so many uh, different and somehow irreconcilable, um, uh, you know, uh, groups. Um, so first of all, immediately after uh, his death or around the time, you know, the, the last days of his last month of his life and, and immediately after his death, he was an important inspiration for what's called the Paris School of Thinkers. So a new generation of uh, young uh, Jewish intellectuals who wanted to reclaim Judaism and did not want to espouse the dogma again of this kind of uh, universalism that would be either secular or Christian. So he made really a difference in those people's um, uh, you know, uh, work and thought and uh, and so that you know this is the the milieu from which someone like uh, uh, Levinas emerged. So that that was important in terms of of that Jewish Renaissance that you find uh, in France and in and in Europe generally of really being more assertive in your Jewish identity and in the fact that Christianity had somehow uh, taken aspects of Jewish ethics and claim them uh, theirs, uh, it's, that it's own. Um, so that's, that's the first part. The second aspect uh, is um, after the Holocaust, the, uh, the Second Vatican Council. Uh, and so a few of the Jewish delegates to uh, the council were um, either you know, self-proclaimed um, uh, students or disciples of Ben Amozeg, or people who were influenced by him. And so, again, as, as those thinkers that I mentioned who went back to Judaism in order to reform uh, Christianity, those thinkers felt that, uh, you know, given the magnitude of, of the, and the complicity of the church uh, in, the, in, the third, in, in, in the Nazi crimes, uh, there was that moment of both dialogue, but also um, 
a way of, for the church to sort of purge itself from its anti-Jewish, uh, um, you know, tendencies, but also to reclaim and to be able to uh, revisit its Jewish identity. And so that would be the kind of the way forward um, in the, you know, after facing the, uh, the, the magnitude of, the, of the, the, that disaster. And so, so that's interesting because that, um, those thinkers uh, were heavily criticized by right-wing Christians, uh, Catholics, who said that basically because of Palier and Ben Amoseg, uh, they had Judaized the church. So they were trying, it's like almost a conspiracy theory of the, those Jews are trying to infiltrate the Vatican. And this is really a problematic, um, most problematic. Um, and, and God knows that they absolutely love this kind of conspiracies. You can find it, I'm not gonna point to any, but this is those, uh, a few websites are you know still peddling this kind of of um, of you know theories? Um, on the other hand, uh, and on the side of the Atlantic, uh, so not in Europe, uh, some Christian evangelical movements uh, who were that were dissatisfied with uh, what their churches had to offer uh, in the late 70s and 80s turned to Palier and to the non-hide laws and tried to sort of come up with the with communities uh, that were um, centered around the Noahide laws. Um, so there is a there is a Benamosex seminary in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, I know this is very uh, bizarre. Um, and so those are really again like trying to uh, go back to the roots of, of Christianity and try to understand like uh, again, purge uh, Christianity from the dogmas that they felt was, um, you know, or actually damaged the teaching of the of the church. Um, that so that that's actually there. There are no high conventions, uh, and and some rabbis actually speak to those um, at, at those conventions. The other um, on the other uh, end of the spectrum, you also have. Um, uh, uh, people in the in on the in the West Bank, people who were um, uh, even the the Kah party that tried to revive the non-high laws. So you'd say you know right-wing Zionists uh, who were or religious Zionists um, that tried to um, revisit the non-high laws in order to come up with a religious framework in in which the non-Jews uh, could be accounted for uh, in, in Israel uh, by religious standards. So basically that would be a kind of second-rate citizenship, uh, but that, that is very much uh, what they were uh, trying to elicit from the Noahide laws. So we know that you know, the Noahide laws um, and the work of the scholarship of Elliot Wolfson and others have lent themselves to this kind of criticism saying, well, you know, if we have 600 mitzvot and have seven laws. That shows that there is a kind of discrepancy between, you know, uh, what God can expect from the Jews and what, you know, it can expect from the non-Jews. And so that, you know, the seven laws are just, you know, good enough for them. Um, and so that would be a kind of hierarchy um, that, you know, that sort of parades as, as more universal. That's a line of criticism that people have, you know, come up with. And so, um, and, and this, this is why uh, there is this, this tendency of criticizing the, the Noahide laws and saying that it's a kind of second rate uh, redemption or um, salvation and, and the second rate citizenship. And this is what, um, th that, that would be the explanation uh, for this, uh, you know, a, a different kind of, uh, of membership um, and, and based in, in religion in the state of Israel. And there is actually, you know, a significant dialogue between, um, between evangelical movements and, and those, uh, those groups. There is also a kind of, I think that a, an interesting way to look at it and without this kind of judgmental, um, you know, and, and that question of whether there's this kind of intrinsic, intrinsic uh, ethnocentrism um, inscribed in the Noahide laws and whether it's actually more inclusive or less inclusive. 
Um, I think that there is also uh, an appetite among um, religious Zionists to understand, to come up with a narrative of uh, Jews and the nations uh, that would be reminiscent of Rav Cook, but not just Rav Cook. So Ben Amoseg, I think, actually provides a kind of universalism along the same lines as Rav Cook, meaning you know Kabbalah as um, as a religious discourse um, and, and narrative. Um, and, and the question of how you articulate uh, the, the Jewish uh, people and the nations. And so Ben Amoseg, I mean, this is what, ex what accounts for this interest. Um, Nekuda, I mean, there is a number of, of uh, publications um, that, that are actually promoting Ben Amoseg's thoughts and maybe creating conditions for a revival. Yeah, fascinating. I mean, like I said, he definitely was a very unique figure and a unique person and unique uh, theology. So it's been uh, very interesting. Um, I said some of his stuff were printed in Hebrew by Mossad of Cook a while back. And then um, this Rabbi Zaini in Haifa's publishing. He just put out a new thing, I think, a, a week or two ago as well. So this stuff's being published. So if somebody would want to read you know read one of his writings read something of his just to get a little bit acquainted what what is is, is you know someone who doesn't speak french what or does read french what would you suggest what is something that they should you know just understand a little bit what's something you would suggest they read honestly i think that um israel and humanity is extremely uh easy to read the english and one well, even the English one. I mean, the English one is actually based on the 1961 uh, French edition. So you had this first 1914 edition by Palier, and I was still clocking at, I think, like 700 pages or something. Um, so they came up with, uh, after the war, which is also interesting, like in this kind of uh, moment where religious coexistence uh, was or at least this, this coexistence, not just religious, um, was, was of the, felt that, uh, you know, uh, so important, um, that, that is uh, something that uh, was republished in France. And this is the source for the, the uh, polling press uh, edition that, you know, that Moshe Idel, you know, wrote the preface to. So it is, it is not, uh, that should not be uh, dismissed. This English edition should not be dismissed. There are moments in which the translation is in it. Look, it's a polling press. So it's, you know, they sometimes like uh, Aliyah, for instance, instead of Iloui, I mean, there are moments in which they, they get it wrong, but, but the French edition also was, you know, a little more um, approximate. <laughs> Right. Okay, right. And then there's the Masada of Cook one, like I said, which is also based on that abridged version, if, if somebody can, right. can get a yeah. copy of it. Mm -hmm. Okay, so very, very, and obviously this, so your book discusses his biography, it goes through more of the metaphysical the theology in his background that we didn't discuss. Um, just want to finish up with it. Is there any, what are you, are you working more on Ben Amosing now? Are you working on something else? It's your current research. Okay, so one of my um, ambitions or dreams or whatever you want to call this is to actually um, offer um, an English translation of, of M. Lamikra, so that uh, the, 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 the commentary that was banned, um, and, and this is, you know, that, that's a project, and it's going to be a scholarly uh, edition. Uh, so that's something that I'm working on. Um, also now work on the, an, another book that actually slightly was inspired by an aspect of Ben Amoseg's thought, uh, which is the, uh, about the pre-Freudian theories of the unconscious. Uh, basically, Ben Amoseg really came up with the idea that Kabbalah as a place uh, um, is a place where you, um, the, there is a coincidence of opposites. And, um, and this is exactly what the unconscious would look like. So the, um, that, that notion that he was, again, like immersed in, um, in 19th century thought, and this is where the non, I mean, the, 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 the notion of the unconscious emerges. And so basically said that, uh, and that works, I mean, in his idea of, of trying to bring people together that Kabbalah is a place in which 
you can understand what the collective unconscious would look like. So I'm looking at this, uh, so not necessarily only from a Sephardi perspective or from a Mediterranean perspective. Uh, I'm looking at those pre-Freudian moments of the unconscious. I found amazing texts of you know, Hasidism in Vienna uh, that actually you know, uh, praises a, a kind of unconscious, uh, the, the theories of the unconscious in the, in, the eight, in the 19th century. And so this is fascinating. It broadens the uh, geographical scope, but also shows how um, uh, there was the idea of, of, of reclaiming religious or showing that science and faith are not mutually exclusive from this orthodox perspective is, is fascinating. Gotcha. Okay, very interesting. Um, I'm sure people will be looking at my efforts. So um, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.